I love talking about how understanding the Bible as God's epic story is key to thinking biblically. Today's guest is a professor and Bible, uh, Bible scholar who might just agree with me, but we'll have to wait and see. Welcome back to Thinking Biblically. My name is Alan Gilman, and in this podcast, we see how all the all the whole Bible speaks to all of life. I'm really excited about this week's guest. Uh, before I introduce him, I want to remind everybody to please subscribe, review, like, share, um, and send comments. And at the end, I'll, as I always do, I'll share uh, my email address uh, so you can. Uh, uh, interact with me personally. But right now, I'm very excited to introduce to you Dr. Ian Proven. Since 1997, Dr. Proven has been the Marshall Shepherd Professor of Biblical Studies at Regent College in Vancouver, British Columbia. He was born and educated in the UK, and he holds a PhD from Cambridge. And prior to Regent, his academic teaching career took him to King's College London, the University of Wales, and the University of Edinburgh, where he was a senior lecturer in Hebrew and Old Testament studies. Dr. Proven has written numerous essays, articles, and books. His books include commentaries on Lamentations, First and Second Kings, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs. And that's, that one is subtitled From Biblical Text to Contemporary Life. He's also done a commentary on Daniel. He's also written uh, books uh, such as Seriously Dangerous Religion, What the Old Testament Really Says and Why It Matters, Discovering Genesis, the Reformation and the Right Reading of Scripture, as well as Seeking What is Right, the Old Testament, and the Good Life. He's also the co-author of A Biblical History of Israel. He and his wife, Lynette, have four children and three grandchildren. Thank you for being with me today. That's a great pleasure, Alan. Nice to meet you and have a chance to chat with you. Well, I want to start off with... Uh, it's not really a practical question. It, it's maybe practical in terms of biblical interpretation. I do want to get into the importance of biblical narrative and having you explain that for our viewers and listeners. But um, I was excited to see that um, you've written a commentary in First and Second Kings, and I happen to be in th uh, those books right now. Um, and I, I really, my latest approach to my own personal Bible readings. I really take my time and I journal and, and I go through it several times. And, and uh, there's a very troubling uh, thing that happens in First Kings, as you know, and it's one of those things for me as a story, every time it happens, I want to go, no, and it's Solomon's demise. And how here's someone who is so uh, endued by God with with wisdom and intelligence, and God blesses him in such great ways and establishes the kingdom of Israel, fulfills the promises all the way starting from Abraham through David, and then near towards the end of his life, he completely goes off the rails. So here's the question: How then can we or should we read the book of Proverbs, given that Solomon? went the route that he did in, in not only marrying all those women that he should not have married, but also uh, how his heart was turned to follow and worship those gods. 
And what do we do with the book of Proverbs as a result? Well, I mean, there's a bunch of really interesting questions in there. Uh, of course, I think that our biblical heroes are typically unheroic, at least in parts of their lives, and they're mixed characters, just like we are. And I don't think that um, somebody having massive moral failures at the end of their life disqualifies in some way the truthfulness of some of the material that is attributed to them in scripture, right? So, uh, I mean, we know ourselves that people can say very wise things, but live very foolish lives. And uh, it doesn't really affect the truthfulness or the virtue of what is said. Uh, so I suppose that would be part of the answer. Um, of course, I also would want to suggest though, that I don't think Solomon's demise was quite so unexpected as it might first appear, because I think there's evidence of a divided heart in Solomon right from the beginning of his story, not just at the, the end. Um, so that's probably what I would say about that initial question. I unmuted myself. I muted myself. Now I'm unmuted. Um, that's actually quite helpful. And our, as I was going through his story, I felt his initial marriage to Pharaoh's daughter was already a bit of a, a red flag. Would you agree? Well, I would, but even beforehand in the earlier part in First Kings 2, there are these rather dubious um, removals of, of awkward characters, you remember, and they, they are all connected to David's instruction that he should use his wisdom in knowing what to do about these awkward characters. And I think that already, already raises a question about the nature of Solomon's wisdom before he goes and prays in chapter three. So I think there's a suggestion of at least ambiguity there. I would say more than ambiguity that Solomon's innate wisdom is not up to the task. And he recognizes that, which is why he goes to pray in chapter three. Wow. I, I like to think of uh, David's instructions at the early part of First Kings. Um, and I haven't read your commentary. I'm sorry. I don't know if I'm going to contradict anything, but so far, so good. Um, I think of, of David's instructions to Solomon being David's godfather moment. Yes, I, I don't think it reflects well on David. And the preceding story already raises the question about how wise David is, right? The question of who is wise lies at the heart of 2 Samuel, I think. And mm. David is said to be very wise, but he behaves incredibly foolishly. And uh, so on his deathbed, the question, I think that you're right, I, I think he is taking a very um, almost cynically political stance there. Um, and of course, David is a very mixed bag, just like everyone else. So he has his high points and he has his desperately low points as well yeah that's it's very striking how david goes from with some of the people that he basically tells solomon to bump off and it does come you read it really comes across that way like son you really know what to do with these guys mm -hmm. pay them back for how they treated me mm -hmm. that sort of thing would have been in in hebrew with an accent that's been long lost but um 
Prior to that, David seemed to be so carefully godly in how he treated the people who who abused him. Of course, the the Gray's example is is his relationship to Saul mm-hmm. and how he wouldn't touch the Lord's anointed and trusted God to take care of everything. And we see that again uh, with these other people that were um, were after him. But then he instructs Solomon to take care of them um the way i've i've resolved that for me and i'd love to hear what you say of course is that i see in in david's instructions the difference between personal vengeance and his call to his son to enact justice Mm -hmm. do you think that's fair well i think I think it's fair as a question because I think that the whole business there is is not just what is wisdom and who has it, but what is justice and who knows how to exercise it. I mean, Solomon later uses the sword, you remember, in chapter three, once he has prayed and been given wisdom, he uses the sword there to achieve actually justice in the case of the woman, do you remember, the two women who claim the, the child. So um, the question of how the sword is being used in both chapters is is key to the whole thing. But um, his intent wasn't to actually cut up the baby. No, but that's the point, right? He uses he uses the sword in a wise way. Oh, okay. To achieve uh, a resolution of this complicated case that would only have come before him because all the lower judges didn't know what to do, right? Mm-hmm. So this is the test of Solomon's newfound wisdom. Uh, and he finds a way of resolving it that um, is is very wise, actually. But it's the same sword, as it were, that he's just used to get rid of the, the enemies. And David's general attitude towards the enemies prior is precisely what raises the question in the reader's mind about his final words to Solomon. So the, the narrative is pressing these questions upon us, I think. You used a term earlier that is one that I think makes all the difference in how we understand um, biblical narrative, and we still haven't defined that yet, which we're going to get to, Uh, but you use the word ambiguity. And in my experience of teaching the Bible and and hearing, preaching and reading books about the Bible and Bible stories, it's not really an area that a lot of people have gone to. I have the impression that a lot of um, pastors, they don't want to give their people ambiguity because it makes them uncomfortable. But the problem is when you ambiguity is all over the scripture, Old and New Testament. Do you want to speak into that? Sure. I mean, I, I take the, the Reformation view that scripture overall is what they call perspicuous, right? That it's not as if there's some like irresolvable problems at the heart of scripture reading that make what God is saying to us, broadly speaking, unclear. I think that scripture is broadly clear, but in in communicating the word of God to us, it's also telling us narratives or stories about actual real people whose motives are sometimes very ambiguous, right? So what we're being clearly told about David is that David had a light side and a dark side. There was ambiguity 
what we're being clearly told about Solomon is the same. So I think what makes people nervous is the idea that scripture itself might be in some irresolvable way ambiguous, which I think would be troubling, to put it mildly. But the kind of thing we're talking about is not that. I think what we're talking about is the way the scripture, in speaking truly about people's historical lives, represents them in all of their complexity and ambiguity. And that's important because if we read these stories as only telling us about heroic features, we will end up imitating things that we really oughtn't to imitate because these will become role models for us in every possible way, not just in the good ways. And so it's important we grapple with this um, anti-heroic aspect to these uh, biblical narratives, I think. Yeah, um, Tim Keller has a sermon on Samson that's extraordinary. I don't know if you ever heard it, but he talks about hero and anti-hero. Mm. And the fact is, Samson is from God, mm-hmm. but he's not somebody that you and I should emulate. No. In fact, <laughs> most of what he did, I couldn't even if I tried. But but all over Scripture is 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 that that truth that you were explaining how it's the Bible characters, and I've actually stopped calling them heroes mm. because they're not heroes in the classic sense. And, uh, you know, um, comic book heroes are more like Greek heroes, except in, in some comic book genres and, and Marvel movies, for example, Marvel heroes tend to have um, these hum- human qualities that they're really grappling with. But even in the way that they, the, their effectiveness is found in, in powers that are superhuman, mm-hmm. the the Bible isn't like that. Even even uh, the Messiah himself, Jesus doesn't operate as a superhero. He op- he operates as the most godly man who's ever walked the earth, and 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 demonstrates for us true humanity, mm-hmm. which sadly, in my opinion, the church has often missed that uh, about him. Yes, I think Jesus takes a very determined stance against being a superhero. Other people would like him to be a superhero. That's the whole, the whole dynamic of many of his conversations, I think, with, with the people who have expectations around. And more broadly, if you compare the Bible to its ancient you know, cultural context, the, the standard genres of the ancient world are you know, myth, mythical kind of, you know, kings and gods and superheroes. It's all about royal power, royal propaganda. The story is told from above. It's all about gods and kings who are gods. Um, the Bible is is remarkable because it's a story about ordinary folks, by and large. Uh, and the great heroes of the biblical story are often exceedingly ordinary folks, like slaves and you know, minor characters, as we like to, to say. Um, and this makes the Bible unique, um, I think, in terms of ancient literary forms. So that gives hope to all of us minor characters. Well, it does. It means that when I read scripture, I find myself there. Uh, and this is part of the problem. That if we insist that we should only find heroes in the Bible, the question then arises, well, what's it got to do with me then? Because as you said, you're not going to be a Samson. And I'm sure that everybody around you is quite relieved about that, actually. Um, you know, so I, I think this is exactly right, that, that 
that the power of Scripture is precisely that when we read about people there, we recognize that they are people in many ways like us, not in every way, but in many ways like us. And, and yet people read the Bible through a like a hero grid. And so they think of, of, of the main characters as heroes, which then means they're not really reading the stories. Well, there's a long history of not reading the stories properly, though. And unfortunately, I mean, my favorite example of this is a man called Ambrose, who was Bishop of Milan, who wrote a, a treatise on Jacob that basically argued that Jacob had a happy life because he was virtuous, like the Stoics were, more or less. I'm summarizing. And you read Ambrose on Jacob, and then you read the story of Jacob, and you wonder what on earth they have to do with each other. And the answer is very little, actually. So there is a long tradition that is almost premised on a very simple idea that we're dealing with the Holy Bible, therefore everyone in it must be holy. And this is not only a wrong idea, it's a very dangerous idea, because we should imitate, I imagine, what is holy. And so this is, this is problematic, I think. Um, yeah, so talking about Jacob and, and his story of, of wrestling with God um, is the reading in the synagogues uh, this, this coming weekend. Um, and my interaction with people on Jacob, either you have the, the people that will treat him like a, he's a Bible hero, so he's a Bible hero, so don't, don't confuse me, or they turn him into this horrific, devious character, and then the grace of God is simply put on top of him because that was God's plan for him, and that's that. And, and we miss the ambiguity mm. of this man's life. And what I've seen in him is that he does certainly go about what he goes about in the wrong way, but his heart is for... the his father's inheritance, whatever he understands about that, as a, in contrast to his brother Esau, who just is concerned about his stomach and living in the moment, which he'd do very well at living today, uh, Jacob had his eyes on something greater and would do anything in his power to get it. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I wasn't planning on asking you this question, but may as well. What do you think of God's statement to him when he changes his name to Israel and says, you have striven with God and with man and have prevailed. Yes. Like, that is the most mind-blowing statement in all of scripture as far as I'm concerned. But it, those words came from God. Well, they did. But that whole is one very puzzling element of an entirely puzzling narrative, don't you think? What's going on? Who's wrestling with whom? Who sees what, when? What actually happens with the injury? What's all that about? He's prevailed, but he limps away from the battlefield, having apparently also lost. And so that is a very dense narrative. And uh, a number of commentators have said some very interesting things about the nature of this biblical prevailing, you know, that you, you only win by losing. And I think there's, it's a deep, it's a deep passage. But that whole family, of course, I mean, they're a bit of a disaster zone in many ways. I mean, Rebecca, you know, very powerful, powerful person, right? Um, not necessarily exercising her, par her power with, you know, the best of intentions or results. Esau, as you say, is not a, is not a very 
good character. Jacob is, of course, a cheat, fundamentally. Um, um, so, you know, the, you know, it, would you welcome that family into your church is one of the questions that somebody asked me once, you know. And um, Well, who do we let in if we don't let them in? Well, there is that, of course, but I think they were deliberately making a kind of almost a little joke about that, that these are not respectable people. But the point is God, God works through these kinds of people in this narrative. Amazingly. And yeah. And, but again, it's not as if they were just these creeps doing horrific things, and then God kind of used them anyway. We do have uh, Jacob's heart for what ends up being the things of God, even though he doesn't really understand that they're the things of God yet. Um, and uh, and the fact that he would hold on to God, whether he understood who that was or not, he held on to him for dear life, uh, even if it would have killed him. Mm-hmm. And the result was blessing. Like, again, ambiguity. I just find this so yeah. fascinating. And, and it's, I, I find these stories, um, they do speak to real life in a way that um, abstract concepts do not. No, that's right. And it goes, it goes back a little bit to your superhero comment, I think, because the modern mind finds it very difficult, I think, to deal with how, how lacking in obviousness evil is, if I can put it that way. We, we tend to, we want cartoons. We want caricatures. We want a very clear division between good and evil. Um, and of course, as Salton Eatson once said, the trouble is the line between good and evil runs through every single human heart. It's, there is such a thing as the banality of evil, as some of the famous ones said. And I think that um, when we read scripture, I th- when we read it with attentiveness, as we're kind of proposing here, the power of it is magnified enormously because we realize this is a story about us. It's not just a story about them. And although there are many things we should learn negatively, you know, don't do that, don't do that. There are also things we should learn positively. So we should learn to trust like Abraham and to pray like like Elijah. Does this mean we should be like Abraham and Elijah in every respect? Well, no, I don't believe so. Uh, even Abraham uh, got into trouble, you remember, by claiming his wife was his sister on, on two occasions. And Elijah was capable of mountaintop triumphs and then turning tail and running away from Queen Jezebel in the next moment. So are we supposed to be like these two, two guys in every way? No, I don't think so. But can we learn about trust and prayer? Yeah, we can. Yeah, yeah but how many people just like Elijah have done some incredible, magnificent things legitimately for God and then we're plunged into desperation and depression and wanting to die. And sadly, too many people won't even admit that because, of course, if they've done the great thing, they want to play the hero uh, for themselves and and it's what everybody else wants. And they can't accept uh, that that same person could also plunge the depths of of despair. It, it strikes me uh, like there's there's a. You know, I grew up in a family where I was at, I was actually in therapy at age five, and it's all part of my own story and, and coming to the Lord in the midst of having panic attacks when I was 19. But but 
I never thought of mental health as a shameful uh, thing that happened uh, to people, myself, my family. While today there's so much effort to try to, what's the word for, to de-shameize mm -hmm. mental health issues. But human beings are fragile, mm -hmm. right? We easily break. And the Bible characters, who are not heroes, are the same. You know, Mo Moses ends up being disqualified by, uh, by to go, uh, going to the promised land because that anger issue that seemed to to plague him when he was younger all of a sudden rose to right rose to the expression rose to the top in that moment, and he didn't do exactly what God wanted him to do, and he really acted out, and that happens to people. It does, and of course, the real hero of the biblical story is always God. And you see that in the Elijah story. I mean, what's most important, I think, about First Kings 19 is not that Elijah runs away. It's what God does next. And there's that beautiful passage about the angel coming alongside and very quietly, without even obviously being an angel uh, in the first instance, uh, looking after Elijah's physical needs, first of all. So he doesn't give him a long sermon about pulling himself together or having a prayer meeting, you know. The first thing is, yeah, you're exhausted. Have some food. Have some have, have something to drink because actually you don't even know where you're going. <laughs> and uh, it's a wonderful picture of um, God's compassion toward people who have lost their way temporarily, really. Um, yeah. So... As, as promised, can you explain uh, what, when we talk about biblical narrative, what does that mean? And then the importance of biblical narrative, which I actually think we've illustrated quite a bit already, but I think it still needs to be said. So when you say biblical narrative, what does that mean? Well, at the largest level, it means that all of Scripture is given to us in the form of story. I mean, all of Scripture, the frame of the whole thing is. Now I muted myself. I'm back. Sorry about that. Um, so we move from the beginning to an ending. Genesis to Revelation and all the other genres, all the other types of literature are embedded within a story. Uh, so at the macro level, I think we're dealing in the end with an entire, with God's narrative. And then the form of a lot of the material in the Bible is also narrative form. So it's not proverbs, it's not law, it's not poetry. Although the line between prose and poetry is a tricky issue in, in, um, in biblical studies, but I won't get into that, I think, today. Uh, but um, so we have the, a great amount of building material that's also narrative in form. And that means that we have to pay attention to the kinds of things we would normally pay attention to as educated readers in any culture um, when we read narratives. So it involves how words are used and how, how sentences are put together and the use of uh, metaphor and literary convention, rhetorical stuff, all the stuff that would normally be part of our repertoire in reading, whether we could name them or not, I think then comes into play. And we've been doing a bit of that as we've been talking without really pausing to analyze it yet. And so 
why is, I don't know if you already explained this, why is being aware of the Bible as story important? Well, first of all, is reading this, reading the Bible this way new? Oh, by no means new. No, not at all. I mean, St. Augustine wrote an entire treatise um, on essentially on how to read the Bible well, and already was talking about all the things I've just mentioned. So not at all new. Uh, we, we have to realize here that we, we let me say, wh why is it important? Well, let me give you one example of why it's important. People very often get um, very emphatic on, we're dealing with historical stuff here, which I agree, I agree we are. But what they mean without realizing it is history and not something else. So the word story implies fiction. It, 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 it doesn't seem to fit with, with um, but the thing is that we're never just dealing and recounting the past with facts. We're always dealing with somebody presenting the facts, making a narrative out of the facts, wanting to communicate certain truths by telling us about the facts. Otherwise, why would you bother? Otherwise, it's just one emperor after another, you know, why would you make a list? So, in fact, uh, even with, with, with modern history, it has this narrative form. And so, if we simply want to know the facts, I suppose we can just read a chronicle of some kind, but scripture comes to us as a story woven out of the facts, a true story woven out of true facts. And if we want to hear the message, we have to attend to its actual narrative shape. And I think it's for the lack of that realization that people then find the Old Testament dry and boring and they probably hated history at school and now they're getting more of it, you know, and there's no, the power of it is not coming across because people don't recognize that somebody said it in this way and not in some other way so that they could communicate a message, which turns out to be the message that God wants you to hear as well, because we regard this not just as any old narrative, but as scripture. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I have the impression that a lot of people read the Bible, whether it's the the common reader loves the Lord and wants to get something out of it, they're looking for little gems mm. in their whatever their reading is, and they're not often aware, aware that there is this broader narrative going on and that there is a narrative structure, you use the word frame, mm. um, through which the Bible is communicated. and now today and they've been speaking for such a long time that you know a lot of sermons are topical mm. which is it's you know that would be an app an abstraction of what hopefully is coming from the bible which is narrative and then systematic theology is an abstraction of truths uh, apparently derived from biblical narrative it is there a is there a problem in in, in doing that, let, let's start with the topical sermon. Is there something that's missing when there is a, um, a tendency to, to focus on topics rather than working through the Bible? I mean, I, I think topical sermons can be very biblical and very good. A lot depends on how much work the preacher has done and all the other stuff beneath it, though. 
if it's a case of trying to strip away all the art of the narrative just to get to like abstract propositions, I think that's a strange thing to do in a way, because God has chosen to give us scripture in this form, not some other form. And I think without realizing it, that some theology and some preaching gives the impression of thinking that God made a mistake and we now have to, you know, make it simple again for people. And I just think we need to reckon very seriously with the fact that God gave us this kind of scripture and not some other kind of scripture. We don't believe, well, I mean, Muslims believe that God gave them the Quran. All I'm saying is the Quran is not the least bit like uh, the Christian Bible, right? It's a very different form. And God did not, in fact, we believe, give us the Quran as our rule of faith and life. He gave us these scriptures. So I think that whatever else we do with topical sermon or theological abstraction is only as it's only as valuable as the connection, the deep connection it has with the form of scripture itself. And so when people are choosing to preach topical sermons because they can't be bothered to learn Hebrew and Greek and actually read the Bible and try and introduce other people actually to biblical teaching, that is a problem. Uh, it's not a necessary problem. I'm not condemning the entire genre of topical preaching. On the other hand, I think that the main job of preachers ought to be to um, lead people deeper into the scriptures, to engage with the scriptures themselves. And sometimes the three points that people take away seem to be enough, and it doesn't lead them to actually into the scriptures as a result. What makes me happiest when I deliver a lecture or preach a sermon is when people come up to me and say, gosh, you know, you really made me want to go back and read the Bible more. That's, I think I've done a good job when that happens. Right. So, yeah, well, well as you know, throughout church history uh, to the current day, there have been approaches that have cut God's people off from whole sections of scripture. You know, for a lot of people, the Old Testament is the Old Testament and the New Testament, the New Improved Testament. I had a pastor many years ago tell me that he didn't preach from the Old Testament because, you know, it's not for us sort of idea. And that has come down to people in, in different ways. I, I love your title of your book that I haven't read, but I love the title, Seriously Dangerous Religion, mm. what the Old Testament really says and why it matters. Um, is Old Testament dangerous? Well, it is, and I chose that title, as you can imagine, deliberately as a rhetorical device because I was really responding to people like Richard Dawkins and, and all of those, you know, who talk about the Bible as dangerous, and they mean in a bad way, right? They mean that all of this is dangerous to human flourishing and so on. My perspective is that biblical theology, the, the, the biblical narrative, everything about it is dangerous but it's dangerous to false ideas, uh, dysfunctional <laughs> societal organization. Uh, it's dangerous to um, human autonomy, exercise without God. It's very, very dangerous um, in a good way, right? These are scriptures given us to, to shine light into darkness and so on. So I was deliberately playing with the word dangerous because of the subversive, unsettling, calling to repentance aspects of, of scripture. Um, so yes, dangerous in all those ways, for sure. So you're probably aware, of course, that there are people that'll preach Old Testament. Uh, they may not 
be as disparaging towards it as that one minister was uh, who never preached from it. But others seem to use the Old Testament as its its only function is to show how bad we are so that we can then be led to Jesus through whom we can know the grace of God. Yes. Do you see it that way? Uh, no, <laughs> I don't. And and I find this a, to be a curious point of view for at least two reasons. First of all, when the New Testament um, quotes and regards and refers to the Old Testament, uh, it, it refers to as the, the living word of God for the people of God now. And the Apostle Paul, in that famous verse that so many of us were forced to memorize as children, all scripture is inspired, God breathed, and useful for, and then a fill in the blanks. Well, of course, he's mainly talking about the Old Testament in that verse, because the New Testament doesn't exist yet at the point when he's writing. So it's impossible to be in line with Jesus and the apostles and not to regard the Old Testament as active Christian scripture. And secondly, because the early church recognized that, they actually excommunicated a man called Marcion uh, and all of his buddies um, for a number of reasons. But one of the, the reasons was precisely that Marcion wanted to, 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 to put the Old Testament on the scrap heap and just focus on, on parts of the New Testament. So this idea has already been pronounced heretical by the church as well. And I think those two, two truths, you know, add up to a very, it makes this, this position with regard to the Old Testament, which I often heard actually, very, very problematic. I, I just can't see how we can stand in line with Christ and the apostles and, and take that view. I think it's impossible. Except it is, it is very common. And it you know, is. people will talk about the Old Testament as if it's dry, except for some of the stories that that yeah. are used for Sunday school lessons. Uh, but yeah. well, I mean, I, I, if I were responding to that, and people were asking me about, it, I say, well, I find I find your your first set of feelings about it very interesting. However, it's possible for our feelings just to be plainly misleading and unhelpful. So let's go deeper into that, and let me tell you why. You need to take it seriously as Holy Scripture, no matter what you feel about it. And so let's talk about why you think it's boring and dry and irrelevant. I mean, you read the Psalms. The person who wrote Psalm 1 did not think the Old Testament law or Torah was boring. It was the source of blessing, the very source of life. So how is it that person's perception was so different from ours? Uh, these are extremely important questions, I think. Yeah, and yet they're they're ignored. They're ignored. Psalm one nineteen. But again, because it's it's the Old Testament, it's often seen as it's this substandard yeah. uh, spirituality in contrast to the the real deal that we that we get with with Jesus in the New Testament. But as you brought up with the Second Timothy three passage, that's just so contrary to what Paul. Uh, the other apostles and Jesus actually believed about what they called the scriptures, which was the Hebrew scriptures, because as you said, New Testament wasn't written yet. Yeah. So, I mean, if we ask why do Gentile Christians read the Old Testament at all, isn't that a bit like reading somebody else's mail, you know, which is very often the prevailing sentiment. 
My answer is we read the Old Testament because Christ gave it to us to read as part of our fundamental rule of faith and life. And that's the reason why Paul, already writing to predominantly Gentile Christians in Rome, quotes the Old Testament right, left, and center. He doesn't say, oh, I know this is not your culture, so I'm going to use Greek stories when I talk to you. Absolutely not. This is the scripture for everybody. It originated with the Jews, but now it's become the scripture of the entire the entire church. Um, so this is a profoundly important point, and uh, I think Marcion may have lost the battle, but in many ways he won the war in large sections of the church with regard to this idea about the about the Bible and the New Testament being the only important bit. I think it's impossible as an idea. Yeah, one of the, one of the things there's just there's so much to this actually, but in wondering about why God would reveal Himself through a narrative structure, um, I think one of the things that's going on is that God created life as a story. Mm-hmm. There's no human being that hasn't come into the world that doesn't have a story behind it. They may not be aware of the circumstances that led to their birth. But something interesting, dramatic happened to bring each of us into the world. And that's just the beginning. And the beginning for us as individuals, but we've been part of this grand epic. And we also know people connect with story. That's why the um, it's often it's sermon illustrations that people remember and, and not all the other explanations. Mm-hmm. And then I maybe you want to comment to this as well. well. Absolutely, and, and, yeah. I think, so. I'm sorry I interrupted you there, pardon me. No, but if you have something to say, just go ahead. <laughs> um, I was getting excited, and uh, unfortunately that's what happens when I get excited. Um, I think the cosmos itself has a narrative structure, right? We, it's now, it seems we're now pretty clear. There's a beginning, right? And, and we're in the middle of it, and we're going somewhere. Time is an arrow. It's not a circle. And the biblical narrative she agrees with that. Time is an arrow. There's a beginning, a middle, and an end. And over against all the cyclical, mythical kind of structures of the ancient Near East where the, where the Israelites lived, over against all of that, we have this narrative structure in Scripture. It mirrors the narrative structure in our own life. It mirrors the larger narrative structure. And the most exciting thing about getting people getting a hold of this is that it becomes clear then that our task is to connect our story to the big true story, to read it into and out of that big story. It's our story. The Gentiles in Paul's language have been grafted into the same vine. This is this is who we are at a much more fundamental level than our ethnicity or or whatever, right? This is the we live in a society now dominated by concerns of identity. Well, the fundamental identity question here is very clearly articulated, I think, in, in our biblical story. This is who we are. Um, so it's a, it's a very wonderful thing because we need this larger story. That's why we continually create narratives where we don't have meaningful ones already. It's in the end of the day, it's why people play video games because video games present a more coherent, pleasant narrative to them than their own lives do very often, sadly. Which in many of them uh, have conflict and the need to resolve the conflict, which 
if only people could grasp that the greatest adventure that we could encounter is when we allow ourselves to be drawn in to the God's epic, which yeah. is of which the Bible reveals its its fundamental truths, and then we can be invited into be part of God's ongoing mission, yeah. and and be part of this ever developing incredible story. Yeah. One of the things that amazes me, and I'm not too sure what to do with it in terms of of how maybe we should emulate it, though maybe we've done that a little bit, and that is uh, in defense of reading or understanding life through God's epic story, when God becomes a man and he's challenged theologic, the, uh, theologically, politically, whatever it is, and um, he's put on the spot, he ends up answering with story, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. not explanations, yeah. which is the normal way we would do it in, in our culture. Um, and, and so to me, that's an, a further encouragement that that narrative is is the essential teaching tool. Yeah, I think that's true. It's not that Jesus doesn't have discourses as well of a more formal kind, like the Sermon on the Mount and so on. But fundamentally, I think that's quite right. And have you noticed how many of those stories that we think are kind of obvious actually puzzled the disciples, which goes back to this thing about why has God given us scripture in this form? One of the answers is that we need to do some work. We need to show willingness and desire like the disciples did who went to Jesus afterwards and said, Rabbi, explain further. We're clueless, right? And so the very shape of the revelation of God is one that engages, requires things of us, requires us thoughtfulness, reflectiveness, uh, will desire. That's all profoundly theologically significant, it seems to me. It's not that God is just giving us like hurdles to trip over, but it's, it's about the whole thing we're being summoned into is a relationship, and that requires our engagement, not just our passive consent. Oh, yeah, it's the Bible. Of course, it's the Bible. Okay, well, but the devil knows the Bible as well. So what comes next, right? Yeah, when recently when I was working through the Gospel of Mark, um, I was reading something and I hadn't heard this before, but the theory is that I, I was aware that the tradition is that Mark wrote down Peter's version of the Gospel. But the picture that this one commentator was making is that this is what Peter would have been sharing orally in the public square. Mm -hmm. And somehow picturing that caused me to read Mark differently. And I began to see that there was this general theme. I know Jesus actually says it, but the theme of to him who has ears to hear, let them hear. Mm -hmm. And not just in the parables, but in the way that Mark was writing his gospel, I was getting the impression that that it was a calling out. Are you listening? Are you paying attention? And he and this applies to the whole Bible. God's not spoon feeding mm -hmm. truth nuggets mm -hmm. to us but rather he's putting out there his truth and we're supposed to pay attention and get the implications of what he's saying. Absolutely. I, I really agree with that. And of course, Jesus is standing in the prophetic tradition when he's doing that, because you have Isaiah and Ezekiel, both of them with this highly ambiguous commission they get about 
preaching the truth, but nobody will understand because of hardness of heart and so on. And so I think that um, we see in the Gospels the same thing working its way out. And of course, I think all the Gospels really were written down when they were written down because that first generation of apostles were dying out. And so now you need the canonical rule being written down because it was no longer possible to go and check with people like Peter whether something was true or not. And so you get Peter's deposit, if you like, in Mark's gospel. And I think all the gospels are of that nature. Um, so it's already it's swirling around orally for a number of decades. And that's fine as long as you can go to the authorities and say, yeah, okay, we heard this though. Um, and then eventually it's written down so that the apostolic authority can be actually enshrined in a written text. Yeah. Before we sign off, um, do you have um, a most mis, in your opinion, a most misunderstood Bible story that you wish you could tell everyone that they would actually get what the Bible's actually saying on this particular thing? Is do you have you, you might have more than one? You know, I don't have a favorite, but. It so happens that you're asking this question a few days after I was teaching in a lecture uh, um, and an example came up. So it's not a favorite. It's just the one that's on my mind. You remember the, the story about the, the widow who puts the two, the two coins into the treasury? Do you remember? And Jesus says, look at that woman. She's put everything that she depends on for making a living into the treasury. And I've often and perhaps typically heard that story quoted in terms of um, encouraging sacrificial giving, right? This was a good thing that she did and we should all give sacrificially for the sake of the gospel. In the context though, the whole context is about scribes who steal people's property. It's about the temple about to be destroyed because it's become corrupt, you know. And I think when you read that story, actually in the context of that section uh, of the narrative, you realize that Jesus is not so much com commending the widow as, as noting how outrageous it is that the whole system is, is oppressive with regard to widows. Um, so I'd like to suggest that as an example for people to go back and don't just read the story, read what comes before and read what comes afterwards and think about what's going on here. Is it a good thing that the temple authorities, as it were, require from this poor widow everything that she depends on for her livelihood? Um, so there's an example of um, maybe a rethinking is required when we read the, the thing in the larger frame. I'm sure I could think of others if I had time, but. That's, that's yeah. And that, that understanding of that story plays into something that I continue to see in the gospels and it's the subversive nature of, of its teaching. Um, and also goes back to what I was saying about Mark that the, the teaching through the Gospels isn't explicit. It, it doesn't read like Aesop's fables. You know, here's the hard to understand story. It means this, now go do that and to be good little boys and girls. 
it's way more complicated than that. Mm-hmm. Um, would you have a, do you, would you think it's wrong for somebody to read that passage and go, you know what, I've been really stingy about my giving and maybe I should be more like that widow? No, I don't think that would be wrong. I just think there's more more going on, not less, right? And I think this is the point that I don't, I wouldn't want to ever give anyone the impression that I thought that you can only read the Bible properly, like if you have a graduate school education or something ridiculous like that. That's not what the church has believed. The church has always believed that ordinary folks who can read at least, right? There is a qualification. You have to be, if you're not hearing, it's orally. But let's just broaden it out. Ordinary people hearing or reading um, the gospel story can grasp what it's all about and certainly can learn enough to repent of their sins and be saved and all the rest of that. There's a fundamental perspicuity to scripture. I agree with that. However, the church has also believed in educating people in people uh, learning biblical languages, in people going deeper, you know, um, there are certain risks involved in not getting more educated because we all know about misreading. We've all done it. We all look back uh, from a point of view on the road later and we say, you know, I wish I'd known this that I now know back then. So it's not an either or, right? It's not either scriptures entirely clear uh, or 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 the opposite. I, I think it's a case of we are all called as disciples to enter ever deeper into the scriptures to ensure that we have grasped the truth as fully and deeply as we can. And we all, all of us to regard that as our part of our discipleship. I think one of the great, it ought to be regarded as a scandal. Let me say this rather controversially. It ought to be regarded as a scandal when people are not at least as well educated in Bible and theology as they are in the other parts of their lives. I don't expect somebody leaving school at 16, you know, to, to have, to be even to be able to aspire perhaps to the same level of, of, of understanding as, as, as other folks, but it ought to be regarded as a spiritual problem that those people who do have graduate educations and so on are still reading the Bible at a 101 kind of Sunday school level. Uh, I, just, I just think that's not consistent with our calling, really. So, Yeah, and, and the good news is God gave us a, a written revelation that is accessible. And, yeah. and that's not to mention all the work that's been done so we could read it in good translations. But also that the whole narrative structure, um, and for some people that might seem really strange. But I want to encourage people: once if you take a step back and you see that Paul's letters were written within a, a cultural story framework, or even when we're talking about at the beginning, that we can even learn more. We can learn from Proverbs even more so because the the man who wrote the, these words of wisdom himself was was like us. Uh, frail and, and struggled morally and, and so on. That the whole scripture has been given to us in this accessible way, um, and it's it's on one hand it has a simplicity enough for children to understand much of it, mm-hmm. but a depth that is it seems to be infinite in 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 scope that will never really get to the bottom of of God's magnificent story because the infinite God is the is its ultimate author. That's absolutely right, Alan. I agree with you. And the other thing is, we 
of all the generations who have ever lived, we have the greatest and easiest access to all the resources we need to go deeper. So it's a particularly bad problem when we refuse to make use of them. We're not talking about rocket science here. We're talking about a little bit of research into the historical cultural background. We're talking about a little bit more thinking about heroic reading. The things we're talking about are not difficult. But what they deliver when people start to pursue them in Bible reading, I think, is of, of enormous value. Well, Ian, thank you so much for taking this time to be with me today. That's a great pleasure. I, I love talking about this stuff. I hope that came across. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe we could do it again. Maybe. Okay, maybe. you don't have to commit yourself yet, but we'll be in touch. So thank okay. you so much. So you can contact uh, Ian through his website. You can go to www.ianprovin.ca. That I'll spell it for you. It's I-A-I-N-P-R-O-V-A-N.ca. And that will be in the description. And so you could, through there, you can uh, see his books. And that's one of the ways that you can get more educated. Also, if you have any questions for me or comments, you can email me at comments at thinkingbiblically.org. And look forward to seeing you uh, another time. Don't forget to subscribe. And, And so until next time, this is Alan Gilman with Thinking Biblically. 